0: No, I'm not a writer. Okay.
1: Polly want to cracker. Welcome to Polly want to cracker. My name is Tim Baker and my guest today is Liberal Senator for South Australia, David Fawcett. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Uh, It's good to have you. Thank you for coming in and having a chat with me. And um, I want to get straight into it because uh, you come from a Defence Force background Mm -hmm. uh, as an Army officer and eventually a commanding officer of the Royal Australian Air Force. So um, tell me a little bit about that and um, some of your experiences there.
0: Yeah, look, I, um, I'm pretty tri-service. I uh, was an army officer, I was an army pilot, ended up working at the Air Force's flight test centre out at uh, the RAF base at Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually became the commanding officer of that, but only via Navy Staff College army said to promote me I had to do staff college they didn't have any places on their course the air force didn't have places on their course so they used an air force place on the navy course to get me promoted to take over the unit
1: so yeah I'm a bit of an oddball from that point of view but it's yeah, been right. a fantastic career yeah okay so um did you get to see any action were you mostly like stationed here in Australia
0: yeah, look, predominantly in Australia, uh, most of my crew was sort of the post-Vietnam era and it was only toward the end that we started seeing things like the First Iraq War yeah. uh, and Australia's involvement in some of those subsequent conflicts. Uh, but yeah, so I've been an operational pilot, I've been a uh, flying instructor, did my flying instructor training in the UK mm-hmm. and um, then also an experimental test pilot, again training at the Empire Test Pilot School in the UK right. and coming back flying helicopters and fixed-wing
1: aircraft, so uh, it's been great. Yeah, okay, What what's... Uh some of the like your favourite aircraft to have to have flown. Oh look, I had a I had a checklist when I was younger of things <laughs> that
0: I always wanted to fly, and uh, two of them I've ticked off. Uh, one was the old DC three or in, in military parlance, it was a C forty seven B, great aircraft. Yeah, um, and uh, the Iroquois helicopter, the old Huey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've flown that for many years. Uh, One that I've never got to fly that was on my list with the Spitfire. Uh, That would have been a magnificent plane to fly, but I've never, never had that opportunity. All right. Will you you ever get that opportunity, or is it now that you're out of there, you're not going to get that chance? Oh, look, if I got that chance, it would be through a museum or a private collector who happened to have a a dual-seat version, so it would be very much a joy flight for me at some stage if uh, if that opportunity
1: came up. Okay. Okay. So I I imagine that through that you've been able to travel around the world as well? Yeah, look, I've just been blessed with so many opportunities uh, all throughout Australia
0: uh, as an Army officer and a pilot flying here in Papua New Guinea, regional places, uh, but also in Europe, the UK particularly, and uh, over in the States as well. So, uh, yeah, it's provided a great, great opportunity to see a lot of the world and then to come back and look at Australia and go, sure, there's things we can improve here in Australia, but by crikey, it's... uh, it is
1: the best place, you know, that I love coming back to. Yeah. Australia's a great country. Yeah, right. I, I, I have to ask, in, in the Air Force, is it anything like Top Gun? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, in terms of fast jets and noise and lots of exciting
0: things, absolutely. I don't know that the egos are quite as big as you see in Top Gun. But, right. yeah, look, it's a terrific environment. And yeah. uh, I was actually speaking at a, a defence forum last night, and there was a number of veterans there, people who had uh, veterans in the Vietnam War mm-hmm. era, Uh, people who had been involved in East Timor in the current conflict. And the the very clear picture that came out was that the Defence Force has really evolved over the last decade Mm. uh, in terms of how it engages and treats people, and particularly women, Uh, It is, without doubt, an employer of choice now, and I would certainly encourage, in fact, I did encourage my own children to uh, consider a career in the Defence Force. My eldest daughter actually applied for ADFA and uh, got accepted, and she made it clear that, you know, her first preference was elsewhere, and if if that didn't eventuate, she'd go to ADFA, um, and her other preference opened up, so she's off doing other things. But, um, yeah, I'd encourage anyone to consider a career in the Defence Force.
1: When it comes to defence, politically speaking, how do you view the current state of things like you know while the government has committed to uh, building subs in sa it almost didn't happen and labor are now suggesting that the coalition turn their back on it and now back with them you know they're going to there's been that? a lot of discussion
0: about whether these announcements have just been a political fix can i take it back to my uh, my own background i should chair the defense committee in the parliament so we oversee how the department spends the money and implements the policies that the government give them Uh, So a lot of my work, having worked in the procurement side of defence and evaluating the aircraft and systems associated with that and ship-helicopter interface and those sort of things, has been on how can we do this smarter because it's the fourth largest budget area of the government, but it's the one that the government has most discretion about. So your your health and welfare budgets are kind of locked in. Mm -hmm. You You can't actually vary the amount we spend on that very much. Whereas what we buy, how we buy it, when we buy it, For defense is quite discretionary uh, and you can waste or save billions of dollars uh, if you get it right or don't get it right so a lot of my um, policy work in the parliament has actually been around how can we improve that system so on this issue of building ships going right back to 2000 when I was uh, an Army officer at Navy Staff College, I actually won the the uh, Naval Institute Prize for Maritime Strategy, and it was for a paper I wrote which put forward the concept of a continuous build of ships, because it would become cheaper, lower risk, uh, but deliver more effective capability for the Navy. And so that's been something that, that I've been driving and, and pushing mm-hmm. for, for many years now, and that culminated in 2012 with a Senate inquiry into the procurement system, and that led to the Coalition's um, first principles review that we took to the 2013 election, plus a promise of a long-term shipbuilding plan, and as those uh, reviews have been conducted and rolled out, uh, it's it's been a long-term process with input from a, a range of people. Uh, that has led to this decision to commit to actually building uh, submarines and ships in a continuous build. Uh, So if you look at the work that's currently being done, uh, which is the air warfare destroyer and the the helicopter carrier, both of those were commissioned by the Howard government back in 2006-7. So the lead time from making a decision on shipbuilding to actually executing it is three or four years And so whilst people are concerned about the layoffs of jobs that ASC now, what that's an example of is a decision by the Howard government to build ships Mm -hmm. and then a complete absence of decisions for six years. Uh, It's an election, so I'm going to be a bit political. That was under Labor. They made no decisions. And so now we're seeing all these jobs laid off. And so we've come back into government and have said, look, we can't allow this to happen, because every time you ramp up a capability, uh, all the workforce and the facilities, and then allow it to die not only do people lose their jobs, but the nation loses that sovereign engineering and manufacturing capability to not just build, but to repair and maintain and modify and improve its warfighting capability. So the plans we've put in place are really about saying, how can we structure a long-term approach that's good
1: for defence, good for the budget, and good for South Australia in terms of advanced manufacturing jobs? Okay, so it really isn't a case of turning their back and saying, no, we're not going to do it, and then backflipping saying, oh, it's a, an election, let's do it. It actually has been in the plans the entire time. It, it has been a
0: long-term uh, process. And as I say, you go back to 2013, and one of the commitments was not just the first principles review, but to deliver a uh, long-term shipbuilding plan.
1: Uh, you're you're um, an Air Force guy, so... Well, I'm actually an Army guy. Army guy? Who, who worked oh, for okay. Air Force for
0: half my career. So. OK. <laughs>
1: Apologies. Um, but I used to
0: keep rubbing into them that... Um, Go back to 1921, originally all the aircraft belonged to Army. Back then, my great-uncle was actually a pilot in the Australian Flying Corps, so that was part of the Army, and they actually flew the... Well, if you could call them fighters and bombers, they they flew those aircraft then. Then our Air Force started in 1921, and for many years, the Army didn't have aircraft, but in the 1960s and 70s, Army started again building up its air capability and so uh, for a number of years now Army has had helicopters like the Black Hawk helicopter, the Chinooksa the Tiger and fixed-wing
1: aircraft as well. Okay, interesting. All right. Okay, well, with that in mind, obviously ships and subs have dominated headlines. Is there enough resources going towards these other things like the Army and Air Force? Yeah,
0: look, in fact, Air Force is probably um, in global terms one of the best-equipped forces at the moment uh, in the world. If you look at the current operations... In the Middle East, to support the fight against Daesh, mm-hmm. uh, we have not only um, fighter-bomber aircraft over there, the F-18s and also the Super Hornets, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have the, uh, the wedge tail aircraft, the early warning airborne radar, and the refuelers. And what we're finding is that those are the aircraft of choice of the whole coalition because they're more effective and more reliable than anything the Americans or the Brits have. Um, So our guys are working their backsides off, doing a great job, really good availability of the aircraft. So, yeah, we've actually um, put, put a fair bit of investment... Uh, into our air capability and on the land side uh, we're in the middle land 400 for example is a big program looking to replace all of our armored vehicles mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's a huge investment in the land capability
1: sorry we're talking a lot about defense but you have that defense background that's um, all right it's a, it's a lot of my work <laughs> <laughs> well that's right so that background and the places that is taking you in what ways has that informed you um, and what you do politically sure
0: look you know, it's, it's a long story for me in terms of, of where I've gone in defence. The, the aviation side, of it you can actually trace right back to when I was a teenager, my dad, uh, who's an agricultural scientist by background, uh, he took a job with the Colombo Plan working in Thailand, so we lived out in the sticks in Thailand. Uh, no TV, no radio, um, not many English-speaking people, and so the two places that had English-speaking people was uh, uh, United States Air Force Base, this was during the Vietnam War, uh, Thak Lee and a um, British missionary hospital at Manorum. And so that has led to the two great interests in my life. One is aviation, because we used to go out to the airbase on weekends and we'd go to the chapel there, they'd take us to the PX, and the first aircraft I ever sat in the cockpit of was an F-111 uh-huh. at this uh, Air Force base. And on the other side of things, uh, the... the missionaries at this hospital gave me Arthur Ransom's book Swallows and Amazons about sailing and so sailing's been a great interest of mine for many years. So all through my life I guess I've had this exposure to these uh, concepts of technical things, you know, boats and planes that work and, and so as I come into politics, particularly with the test flying background where we, we deal a lot with what we call systems engineering in that we see everything is part of a system and if you've got a squeaky wheel, you know, you think I'll oh, just fix the wheel and it'll all be good. But you've actually got to understand what's what's made it squeak, and if I do this, what else is going to change? And so as I approach public policy, I tend to look at it through that lens of saying, what are, what are the totality of inputs into this problem? And if I tweak something or change something, what's it going to do? What are the unintended consequences? So to give you a practical example of that, um, I, for my sins, chair the... Um, Corporations and Financial Services Committee in the Parliament. So that oversees our banking sector, uh, the corporate regulator. And uh, you might have seen a number of scandals around yeah. financial planning and people losing money. I was going to ask money. you about it. <laughs> yep. So when I look at that and I look at the fixes that have been put in place in the past, they're very isolated fixes. People kind of go, hey, this is a silver bullet. If we do this, it's going to fix the problem. And, you know, of course self-interest and things find ways of working around those individual fixes and so the problem perpetuates looking at it from a system safety perspective which is what we do in test flying um, you say okay there's there's multiple layers of protection that could be in place and so the question becomes what are those layers in this case the safety is the financial safety for the consumer what are the multiple layers whether it be regulation or individual training or company culture or you know you name it uh, and so when we did the inquiry into that and sort of put forward recommendations to the government we actually put into the report you know we can learn from professor James reason and his system safety model that applies in aviation and critical things like oil and gas industry we can apply that same model uh, and so we developed you know a range of measures and focused in this one particularly on the individual advisor and their professional standards in education but within that framework so i'd like to think that parliament can actually do with a lot more systems engineers and a lot less lawyers mm-hmm. and personally you know that that has been the big influence that my background's had on my work uh, okay. in the national
1: parliament that's interesting um you don't you just don't hear a lot of that process which is kind of what i'm interested in through this podcast like how obviously about the people but how how you guys make the decisions you do or how you arrive at the conclusions you do you just don't hear about the mechanics of it um, I don't know if that's boring to a lot of other people, but to me, that's kind of that's the sort of stuff I want to know, which obviously doesn't get reported on. Yeah, very and look,
0: often. P- part of the problem, Tim, is that people see the news headlines, and often the news headlines about politics will be something that's asked in Question Time. I'd have to say Question Time is my least favourite part of the Parliament. <laughs> a, it's theatre. B, it is. I don't think particularly productive. I don't actually know that it achieves the purpose it was originally set out for. Mm -hmm. And what it masks is the fact that behind the scenes, you know, if you look at somebody giving a speech in the Senate or the House of Representatives, quite often there'll be very few people there. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, occasionally get an email from someone saying, what are you blokes doing? You know, you're off playing golf or something. And it's like, well, no, behind the scenes, there are multiple uh, processes occurring. So there's Committees that are looking into a particular reference to an inquiry or an issue. There are groups, committees looking at legislation that's coming through. There's meetings with stakeholders from community groups or industry groups or others, all informing the debate that occurs. And I'd have to say one of the things that I really value about the Senate. uh, I I was in the House of Reps for three years, um, but now in the Senate. And one of the things I really value about the Senate is that. what we call the second reading debate, which is where a bill's introduced and both parties speak to it. It's a bit like a school debate. You know, everyone's got their party lines and, you know, the team line, rah-rah, but you never see much actually change during that process. In the Senate, after that second reading stage, it goes to what we call a committee of the whole. And in the committee of the whole, uh, essentially the minister is there and anyone, government, opposition, crossbenchers, can stand up and go, Tim, you know, you're the minister... You've put forward this bill, you know, clause 54, sub-para A. You know, I've been speaking to blogs down the road who runs this company or this group, and they tell me this is going to be an unintended consequence. What are you going to do about that? You know, and quite often you'll see the minister, ooh, eyes will open, you will talk to an advisor, and go, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll consider an amendment to that. Other times I'll have a reason why not, and they'll say, no, we're not going to change it because, etc., etc." But you do actually see, uh, in quite a constructive fashion legislation be improved through the parliamentary process. Now, that's almost, you know, all well, it is telecast, but probably nobody really watches it. <laughs> That's actually a really positive side, and it's where the Senate performs its function as a house of review, where, you know, from both a state or an industry sector or community sector perspective, you get to review and modify and improve
1: Legislation that's going through. I see. Okay, and it's interesting that you you mentioned that Question Time is probably one of your least favourite things. That kind of leads me into one of my questions for you. Um, is that you seem to be someone who um, I wouldn't say flies under the radar, and I excuse the pun, <laughs> but um, but you aren't someone who you see, who appears to pop up in the news a lot, apart from you know that inquiry recently. But um, like even during the back and forth and subs and ships and that sort of thing, you weren't always in the forefront. So is keeping somewhat of a low profile um, born out of your Army experience and your background? or Look, I wouldn't say keeping a low profile is, is born out of
0: it, but I guess I... Um, sometimes my kids call me Mr. Serious. I, <laughs> I, I, I tend to take a view that if people put their trust in you, and particularly I used to, you know, as a commanding officer of a, a unit that did experimental flight tests... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, If you're signing off on plans that people are going to strap their backsides to an aircraft and put their life on the line, you, know, you kind of want to think that your leader is a serious person who takes things seriously and doesn't um, make light of stuff that's important. And for yeah. politics, it doesn't matter whether you're a community group that's concerned about legal funding or for education or health or defence portfolio or national security – Everyone sees the area they're interested in as something that shouldn't be joked about; that should be, you know, taken seriously. So, I tend to approach my work from the point of view of, you know, if I've got something meaningful to contribute, uh, I'll do that. But I won't just be a talking head for the sake of getting myself in the media. Okay. Um, so, if you look in the professional journals, you know, like at the moment, the Australian Defence Magazine, uh, industry magazine for Australia, uh, they're running a series of articles that I've written about our defence industry policy mm-hmm. and and how that's. Uh, Designed and how we are changing the culture of defence's interaction with industry. If you look at some aviation uh, journals and and magazines, uh, you'll find articles that I've written about work that we've been doing in the regulatory side of aviation safety uh, in Australia. So, you know, your average person in the street who reads the advertiser probably won't see much from me, but people who are involved in, you know, financial services, aviation, defence and defence industry... Uh, we will probably see my name you know, yeah. a bit more often. Okay, so we're probably not going to see you on Q&A too much. I'd be very happy to go on Q&A. In fact, <laughs> I spoke at this forum. I spoke at two okay. forums yesterday on defence policy, and somebody was saying, well,
1: why aren't you there at the press club? And I'm like, well, I've never invited me. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Wow, well, that's, that's interesting. So there you go. Um, yeah, well, uh, let's talk a, a bit about the um, the joint committee. And, um, you, you're on the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services. Did I get that right? Yeah, so yes. I, I chair... That committee, so that
0: oversees ASIC, the corporate regulator. Okay, I chair the Defence Committee in the Parliament, I'm also on the Foreign Affairs and Trade Committee, both the Joint One in the Senate, one, and I'm on the uh, Treaty for uh, Committee for Treaties. So that covers everything from ANZUS our alliance with America, through to treaties around migratory birds from you know continental Asia down to Australia, and I'm on the Intelligence and Security Committee. So that oversees our spy agencies and yeah. security agencies and obviously in the last 12 months there's been a lot of work there with a lot of the counter-terrorist activity yeah
1: well that sounds really intriguing and i'm almost um afraid to ask questions because you might have to kill me after well indeed (laughs) so don't ask questions (laughs) that's right but all all i'll I'll say on that is that yes it's it's
0: intriguing it's fascinating to actually get an inside view of what's occurring but one of the great um privileges of working on that committee is as we form these laws to give powers to our security agencies is finding that balance between saying, how do we keep Australians safe uh, by giving the agencies the power they need to be effective in their role, but at the same time balancing the very things that actually make Australia a great place to live, being a country where free speech, freedom of association, all those things underpin who we are. Mm-hmm. And so it's great. You know, We have people from both the, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party there. Um, And in, you know, on the Labor Party and Liberal Party, you have people that are on the, you know, what we call the left and the right of those spectrums. And so engaging with them and a range of stakeholders in the community, the civil society, people that come and get involved in these debates, um, it's just a fascinating experience and opportunity to, to, I think, shape a future for Australia that is a good balance, uh, that is, is healthy for the country in terms of safeguarding and preserving those attributes that make us Australian and make it such a great place to be but at the same time being effective in
1: government in, in securing the nation. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah I, I really do want to ask questions but I don't, I don't know what you could tell me but um, I, would, I would like to be a fly on the wall in, in those rooms. But, uh, We'd swap you. <laughs> Fair enough. So let's talk a bit about the, the inquiry into the banking sector. Um, I think the fact that we know that uh, Bill Shorten's called for a Royal Commission, mm-hmm. and the Coalition have said that they, they're not... Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if they're not interested in that, but they're not going to do that at this stage. I think maybe what some of the public feeling is out there is that did you uncover something sinister that you don't want to get out, or, you know, where where is that at? Why, sure. why not go to a Royal Commission? Well, look, if you if you're ever suffering from insomnia and you need something to read to
0: get you to sleep, go and download the report of the committee which we tabled just before the parliament was prorogued. And uh, the approach that I took with that is, that, sure, you could recommend a Royal Commission. Um, It would um, re-litigate all this stuff through an inquiry. Three years down the track, they would come up with some recommendations to fix it. having gone through the financial services inquiry and now this particular inquiry looking, and this was actually just looking at the relationship between banks as lending institutions and particularly small business as customers, it was actually a relatively narrow scope. um, We felt the better solution was to say, well, what steps can we put in place now to address some of the systemic failings and some of the individual failings that we found uh, in the sector and in the in individual banks, and how do you help the banks put in a, a compliance structure internally that they catch the individuals who are the the errant bad apple? Because uh, I, I don't buy the fact that a bad apple is the only person to blame. In fact, one of the one of the key lessons I bring from the aviation industry is uh, when you see an accident occur, people often like say, "Oh, is that pilot," and I think a classic was the. Incident where a jet ditched into the sea off Norfolk Island, and thankfully everyone survived. But every, just blamed the pilot, said poor planning, it was dreadful, and all the rest of it. Well, we did an investigation into that whole incident. And what we found was that there was a real issue in the culture and conduct of the regulators and the accident investigators, uh, and the company and the training procedures, etc. And so there were all these elements. If you go back to that model I told you about before, there were deficiencies in all of these protections. And so, you know, we've recommended a whole bunch of changes that led to what we, what's called the Forsyth Review, which is reviewing the whole aviation safety regulation. So, when I look at the banks and I apply the same model, I go, you can't just blame a guy at the front desk. What about your remuneration structure? What incentives were there for this person to actually take the steps they did? You know, was he concerned about promotion or getting you know the bonuses that were on offer, et cetera? What about the supervisors within the bank who signed off on things? You know, were they adequate in their compliance? You know, are there remuneration structures that influence them? And so you can't just say it's a bad apple. Um, so, yeah, we, we said, look, we would rather have a look at the systems and opportunities to get independent scrutiny of it and uh, we'd rather have a report that came out and said here are some paths forward here's how we get some independent informed and expert scrutiny and dispute resolution capability into that sector and get that happening now rather than wait another three years for a royal commission okay so what are the next steps now going forward what what happens from here well, look, one of our key recommendations, that uh, the government has just stood up a a small business and family enterprise ombudsman. So this is a person, Kate Carnell is the lady who's doing it, um, whose role is to be an advocate, if you like, uh, for small business, but also to have a a role, and what we've recommended is that she has a role, and her organisation has a role, as a tribunal. So if a small business falls outside of the normal external dispute resolution process, such as the financial ombudsman service or or other structures, then her organisation can pick up their case and provide an informed and expert review of a complaint against a lender. Um, And so that will actually then allow them to, to recommend, look, you know, for a large company, perhaps you go to commercial arbitration, for a smaller company, perhaps you go to mediation, or perhaps they'll actually say, look, you know, we think there's clearly been a breach of the banking code of practice here, uh, and so we would recommend this kind of uh, remediation be put in place. So I think that's a, you know, it's a very functional and practical step that will get results now rather than pushing it off yeah three years hence okay,
1: so do you think that's going to have a, a part to play in this campaign in the lead up to the election or is that going to be is that not sexy enough and it's going to be pushed to the side do you think by the media Oh look well, I think the fact that there's not been much coverage
0: since uh, we issued the report there was a bit of a coverage then, uh, but since then there hasn't been much coverage says that you know people kind of recognize that we do have processes in place to address some of these issues you know we have taken steps through the financial services inquiry uh, to put in place a, a whole raft of measures across the industry to improve it. And some of the decisions and announcements the government made just before the programming of the parliament were their implementation of recommendations that came out of the, the FSI. And so my sense is that those in industry and media say, yep, there are problems, but we also recognise that the government
1: is taking concrete steps to, to address them. Yeah, OK. So, and, and I imagine that's probably preferable. You don't want it playing out in the media the entire time, I imagine you just want to go about your work and just let it play out, right? Look,
0: media has an important role to play. I mean, they, they scrutinise things, they ask the difficult questions and other times they actually give the public confidence that stuff is happening, so I'm pretty relaxed. In fact, on that particular issue, I would have liked more media coverage yeah. so that people would have kind of looked at it and gone, yeah, OK, you yeah, know, they've, they've had a good look at this and, and as a committee in the Parliament, I, I actually have the same powers to a large extent as a Royal Commission in terms of compelling people to appear as witnesses or provide documents and things. So, um, we've done that in the past where we've written either to government departments or private people saying, look, here are the powers we have. You know, we'd we'd like you to cooperate because, you know, we don't want to come with a big stick, but, you know, we can compel the presentation of evidence. And certainly going back to that aviation inquiry, um, we had to do that. And through compelling the evidence, um, then getting a range of experts to come in and review it, you know, we uncovered a whole bunch of stuff internally to,
1: you know, some government departments that wasn't particularly flattering. All right, well, let's uh, talk about something that seems very South Australian. You know, last week there was a lot of, or it depends when this is going up, but whether it was a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of talk about signs going up early. Um, And now it seems, well, even last week again, it seems uh, where Liberal senators are positioned on the ballot papers or the ballot tickets has become a bit of a news story. Um, We know that Senator Bernardi's going to be further down than what he was before and even you're a little bit further down do you make anything of that does that no. mean anything to you
0: if if you look at the um the normal process we have an internal pre-selection process and that occurred you know without any consideration of double dissolution late last year there's you know, a couple of hundred people in the liberal party who make that decision and the order they chose was ann rustin myself sean edwards and karen little uh, if you look at the other part of the Senate ticket, uh, you had Corey Bernardi at number one and Simon Birmingham at number two. Uh, Simon, since then, has become a senior cabinet minister, and so their positions have swapped, and the rest of us in exactly the same order. Okay. It's, it's not a story. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I was going to ask you, yeah, it's a non-story by the looks of things. Um, okay, so, it, yeah, it's not a case of being marginalised or anything sinister going on, There's no. just, that's just... Yeah, the, the, the media are always looking for a, a headline or something to infer some scandal. Yeah, as I said, it felt like a very South Australian thing. You know, um, the debate to, about signs and to, to
0: give and you an example of, of of you know why I get a bit despondent with the media sometimes. <laughs> you know, they they hunt something like that. They'll they'll go looking for it. Um, but we had a really good story uh, a couple of years ago where a the community affairs committee. One of my other interests is rural health. You know, I'm, I'm not formally on a committee, but I. I'm passionate about it and I do a lot of work with different groups to try and make sure we have a sustainable health workforce in country areas and so I I joined, if you like, as an extracurricular activity, this Community Affairs Committee and so we worked with the Greens, the Labor Party, the government, uh, so Liberal and National parties, very multi-party supported uh, inquiry, engaged a lot of stakeholders, issued a report that has now led to a bunch of policy initiatives and I approached some local radio stations to say, hey guys, you know, the Parliament gets a lot of bad rap. You know, There's been some surveys out showing that a lot of young people kind of think, oh, you jeez, know, what's, what's the point of supporting democracy? Here's a great example of where this is democracy working as it should. Uh, and they didn't want to run it. Really? really? OK. So, you know, I, I understand why the public sometimes is a bit disenchanted, uh, but I would challenge media. And so like, this is why I welcome, you know, this kind of show with you because it's yeah. a chance to actually say, you know what, there are some real human beings who actually care about Australia doing a lot of productive work... That the public doesn't normally get to see, and I think it should be highlighted more.
1: Yeah, well, that's certainly the part of the motivation for this show, um, because you do read a lot and you see a lot, and you just think, "Well, hang on, these—they're these, not just politicians." I get the the name is just Polly Wannacracker is a bit of a irreverent, but um, you know, they're not just pollies, You know, they're not—they're they're people. So that's part of that motivation of, of trying to find out. Who you people are and what it is you're up to let's just talk quickly uh, about the campaign i know you've got other things to get on to but um how do you see it so far and each each leader so far because um they're all fairly i think this is they're all in their first leading their first campaign correct malcolm turnbull obviously bill Shorten, and even richard Di Natale.
0: yeah look i think um, you know the public will make up their own mind as to you know the personalities of leaders and parties you know the thing i'd encourage them to look at is you know what are the what are the philosophical underpinnings of the party and what kind of nation do you want into the future? Right. And, um, you know, certainly one of the reasons that I'm in the Liberal Party is that I, I believe in reward for effort. You know, we need to provide equal opportunity for people, uh, but then we need to recognise that depending on how much effort people want to make on their individual capacity, etc., that the outcomes may be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who really need help, we need to lift them up. But we shouldn't have big government... Just choosing to spend more and more of taxpayers' money and raising taxes, we actually need to be saying, how can we have a an inclusive society that provides opportunity, but also reward for effort? Um, compared to you know our political opponents in the Labor Party, who have a, a philosophical position that big government is good, you know government should be providing more programs, government should be trying to equalise outcomes. Uh, we'd rather grow the pie. And, you know, personally, I'm a great believer in personal responsibility as opposed to personal rights. You know, if you have a Bill of Rights, everyone's focused on me. If we have a community that has, you know, I have a responsibility to look out for Tim's interests, we have a community that's more inclusive and and outward-looking rather than inward. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, there's different points of view, uh, and I guess I'd encourage people to look, and particularly in the space I'm in, uh, working a lot in defence, you know, if, if you're concerned about you know, our national security, border protection, etc., uh, and even the humanitarian sides of that. You know, under John Howard, we got all of the children out of detention. Uh, we stopped boats coming, stopped people drowning. Under the Labor and Greens policies, which is, you know, notionally more compassionate, you know, we had over 1,200 people drown, we had more than 50,000 in detention, more than 8,000 children over their period in detention, peaked at nearly 2,000 in July of 2013. Uh, as we've brought our policies back in, boats have stopped again, we've got all the children out of detention, we've shut down 13 detention centres uh, and people aren't drowning at sea. Now, tell me which is more compassionate. I know which I'd take. Uh, It means that we can then focus on bringing people who have a genuine need as a refugee into Australia in a safe manner and provide the support for them. In the defence space, um, you know, the the budget cuts of nearly $18 billion, um, taking funding for defence back to pre-World War II levels, the lack of decisions on any things like capital warships, meaning that now there's people at ASC who are losing their jobs because of that stop-start nature. Um, All the promises that were made by Kevin Rudd you know, many of them were not fulfilled and, in fact, the opposite occurred. And so I just ask people to look at the track record as they make up their mind on the 2nd of
1: July as to who do they trust uh, for our economy and for our national security. OK, that would be a natural point to end it here, but you did touch on <laughs> immigration and the boats and those sorts of things. i just got to ask you quickly, that process, could there be a better process? I know we've seen and we've talked about media and what they will report, but we've seen reports about... Uh, some misconduct and those sorts of things going on. Do you think there's a, still a, a better process that could work? Whether it's, you know, even onshore somewhere, but in a area that's I don't know. I I, I don't even know what I I don't want to say like a prison. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But you know, like a I don't know, just somewhere onshore where um, people are able to at least assimilate a little bit. I I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the best thing is, but I I'm no disrespect, but I'm not entirely convinced what's happening now is the best way. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't really have so look, I th- I example think, to give I you.
0: think the best way is, uh, for example, what we're doing with Syrian refugees, where we've said, look, we recognise there are people there that even when that conflict is resolved, and who knows how long that's going to take, but even when it's resolved, there are minorities there and, you know, Druze, Yazidis, Christians and others that are always going to be persecuted in those places. So, Lots of people, there have a need right now. There are people who will have a need even when the conflict is resolved. We've said, look, we're going to put in place a process where we will go over there, we'll work with them in the refugee camps they are, so they don't need to take hazardous journeys and spend the last bits of money they have. Work with them there and bring them back here and provide them the support. That is the best way.
1: Yeah, that would seem to me to be the best way to And that's what we are doing. Okay. That is what you guys are doing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, I'll forgive my naivety, but... um I didn't feel like that that was happening very much.
0: Is that a- well? It's an announcement just last year that Australia would take in you know, numbers of thousands of okay. of uh, refugees under that program. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a slow process. You know, to date, I think the last figure I saw was 300 have arrived okay. under that. Um, but the process is ongoing in terms of assessing and working for those who do actually want to come to Australia.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that process is underway. Okay. And has that had an impact on less people taking a dangerous journey across the ocean? Well, the main thing
0: that's had an impact on people taking less uh, that journey is the strong border protection policies because they know that the business of the people smugglers has now been broken. That model no longer works. So people go, well, why would I take the risk and pay the money if I know that I'm not going to get there? And so that's the the catch-22 and the conundrum of this whole thing at a personal level. You know, of course you want to be compassionate and, you know, I'm Involved with, with groups in the community, and my wife has been as well, that, that work with refugees. And at an individual level, yes, you want to be compassionate, but your national policy settings have to recognize that misplaced compassion. And so Angela Merkel would be a classic at the moment in Germany, where she said, Hey, anyone who wants to come, you know, we'll give you refuge. <laughs> you know, millions of people flying through, causing all kinds of, you know, deaths at sea, dysfunction, conflict within communities in Europe at the moment. Uh, and so you've got to go, how, how do we balance individual compassion with what is in not only the national interest, but also the interests of the, the refugee populations mm. uh, that are travelling? And as we see in Europe, you know, there are large numbers of people who are not genuine refugees, uh, who are being sent back to their countries of origin. And we've had large numbers here who are not genuine refugees who have been sent back to their countries of origin. And even when Bob Carr was a foreign minister under Labor, uh, he identified that many of the people who were coming were not actually genuine refugees, but were economic uh, refugees or migrants coming and so if your system is going to have integrity if you're going to bring the Australian people with you and say yes we prepared to spend taxpayers money on supporting these people and giving them the services they need to trust the integrity of
1: the system and open uncontrolled borders is is not the answer okay all right well in that case we'll leave it there and I want to thank you for your time today and hopefully we'll get to catch up again soon so good on you, you. thanks